All right, everybody, we are back. This is the Recovery Lab podcast series. Uh, this is episode number 16. Number 16. Uh, again, I'm Drew Hassan. I'm Daniel Anderson. This is my co-host, Daniel Anderson. We are the Recovery Lab podcast. Uh, the general introductory spiel is the same, but I'm mixed up a little bit. I'll take that back. Oh, go on. Everybody needs to buy a hoodie. I can't be. They're amazing yeah, hoodies. They are. They're very attractive hoodies. And we have some left, we have more coming, and they would make fantastic Christmas gifts. 35 40 bucks, depending on what size you get. And uh, you can uh, truck on over to the Recovery Lab page and you can look at them or go to my uh, Facebook page or Daniel's. Absolutely. Black, white writing, very Simple, stylish. very stylish. If Kimberly Hassan likes it, then you know it looks good. There you go. Uh, okay, so... Again, with the introductory spiel. So if you know of something that would be beneficial to somebody in recovery, comment it. The general example I give is that uh, you can get free Narcan from Mr. Moore's Bike Shop uh, in Hattiesburg. You can get free Narcan, uh, I think, at the Pines in Columbus. Or you can go check out End It For Good, uh, Angela Mallet and Christina Dent's organization that helps uh, – Network the free good. Narcan. They're doing system. good work. They are. Uh, also, we would be glad to have your financial support. Every week, I say I'm gonna go get a bank account opened, and I fail to do it. We'll do it next week. We'll do it next week. Uh, but you can sit, and then a recovery lab would then have its own cash uh, cash app tag number tag name. Right. But in the meantime, you can send it to me. Cash tag Daniel Hassan. Or Venmo at Daniel ha- at Drew Hassan. We'll get it. We'll get it straight. Yeah, we'll maybe straight. don't Venmo it because you can't undo <laughs> it. I'm positive the cash tag Daniel Hassan works. Though. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, all right. Without further ado, welcome, thank Brian you. Burleson. How are you, man? Brad, good. I'm Brad, Brad. Burleson. It's, it's been not, a long day. It so. has. <laughs> it has. I'm gonna turn red on Facebook. <laughs> I've been called worse for sure. <laughs> Mea culpa. Ah, welcome. All good. Thank welcome. you. I like the setup. Uh, you guys have, have got the pro the pro rig. Well, it's come a long way from a mini recorder on my desk. <laughs> uh, and this, uh, this is a ripe opportunity to brag on Daniel's uh, uh, electronic and technical capabilities, oh, his desire it. to sew into the podcast, as it were. Like all this, honest to God, without a doubt – would not be uh, possible without his support and dedication and hard work. So kudos to Daniel. Thank you, sir. And it'll just get the message out even better. Um, I've watched a couple of them, and you could tell you guys were kind of feeling through it, and I think the the mic with the, the – everything's going video nowadays, right? Right. So that's, that's where so many people are taking their content. And even with – we're still – it's kind of touch and go with the Bluetooth. It's, it seems to be working well now. But I had the wrong audio cable. You're supposed to have the little the three lines instead of two lines. A T R R S cable, I believe Look, it is. If anybody's listening to this, can you hear it well? Please yeah. say yes. Yeah, I will monitor the face web. Um, okay, I think we're good. All right, tell us a little bit about yourself. Kimberly sure. said yes. Great. So, Thank yeah. you, Kimberly. Hey, honey. Well, um, I'm born and raised here local. Um, I 
grew up in Raymond and Christian family, Christian high school, went to Hillcrest. Um, I think that weaves in part of my story that we'll tell a little later because I, I am proud of how we were brought up. But, um, you know, it, when it talks about recovery, uh, I saw a, a meme the other day, and it was pretty interesting. It was um, – I remember exactly how it said it, but two – Two family members brought up. One becomes a preacher. One becomes a prostitute, and they're both they're both raised exactly the same. It, it doesn't yeah. matter so much of your upbringing. It, it's just it's weird how this stuff can grab a hold of you. Absolutely. And uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But but all I was kind of getting to is love the the upbringing that I had. Like I said, we were at Hillcrest in South Jackson before things changed, um, and then I went on to Mississippi College. I um, I'm a real estate broker here in town. Do a lot of new construction probably the, the big focus of our business, uh, developing land, um, building single family, smaller 1,800 square foot type houses is our, our big focus. I see you all over Facebook. You're doing amazing work, man. Where do, do y'all, where do y'all do most of that work? Rankin and Madison County. Rankin and Madison. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we fight municipalities a lot of times of what we can build. Everybody wants to build the 3,000, 5,000 square foot homes, but, but well, not everybody's Mary Hawkins, but <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I'm focused on providing housing to the policemen, the firemen, the school teachers. And, um, we, yeah, I don't know if 1,800 square feet is sufficient for Madison now, is it? And don't they 2, have 2,000? 2,000. 2,000. And that's bare minimum of where you could even find to put that. Um, if you add that to what today's interest rates are, it's, it's a tough deal. There's no starter home. There's no such thing as coming out of school and getting you a, a right. new construction house. Well, not in Madison County. Uh, yeah, we do a lot of work out in Yandale area. Um, that's that's a growing um, location for us. That traffic's going to be fun when all these houses get built. It's going to be there. rough. Yeah, um, but Rankin County is really good to us right now. So, uh, if we could get some of these interest rates to come back uh, where we got spoiled at three percent, we'll be back to blowing and going. But right now, it's a little bit of a sticker shock. It's seven percent interest. Yeah, we got in at three point five two, and I just I don't understand. I, I, I don't know how. Somebody that's, you know, just getting started or just out of school, like you said, it's it's virtually impossible without help, you know. Yeah. We've had an influx of uh, hedge fund money come into town where they're buying up homes, just tons of them, and turn them into rental properties. And, you know, that's, that's part of the game in other areas of the country. A little bit of a shock here, but that's what it's turned into. If you got to have that starter home type product, you're going to have to rent from one of the big guys right now. Yeah. Rent's a scam. Well, <laughs> it, it serves its purpose. It serves its purpose. So um, I want to say, um, Clay Edwards, uh, as soon as you were on, or basically just as soon as you got off of his radio show, he called me up and he said, man, you have absolutely got to get this guy on. And I said, well, tell me about it. And um, he, he, he told me, you know, he said a few, a few things, little uh, points. I was at work and I wasn't able to listen to the episode uh, that day, but I did listen afterwards and um, you've got a lot of, a lot of amazing things to talk about. And um, so let's, let's, let's start if we could at the beginning of, of how you got intertwined into this topic. Yes. Yeah, I got you. Well, um, you know, part of my story or the reason that I have a story is I had a little brother. Um, we were about 18 months apart in age, one year in school. So if I was a senior, he was one year behind me in school. I was the same friends or whatnot. Um, we did all, everything together for the most part. But I have gotten immersed in researching over the last couple of years of this idea of addiction and 
almost living a double life because a lot of times that's that's what happens. You have the American dream. You got uh, kids. You got a job, but you're also just got this side deal over here that you're trying to beat, but it is ultimately beating you. And um, that's that's the the story that I have to tell. So my younger brother, um, last October, not this year, but the previous uh, year, he he did pass away from um, opioids. I think he got, I know, it was fentanyl got, got wrapped up in there. And um, what that's done is it changed the dynamics of my family. Um, you know, my wife and I, we went from one to four kids overnight. Um, it's changed the dynamics of relationships within our family. And um, I guess we'll just kind of walk through a timeline and try to tell exactly how that happened. Absolutely. Um one of the things that my brother and I did as we were adults, um, we just kind of set a pattern every day of checking in. And at 3 o'clock every day, I picked up my phone and called him. Um, I kind of scheduled my day around 15 minutes or so of being able to, to call and check in um, on him, his wife, kids, whatever it is. And, you know, this, this is a 10-year history. Uh, I always knew what the answer was going to be. But for my peace of mind, um, I, I had to at least hear their voice and kind of understand, hey, everything's good. That's what he would say. We're all good. Everything's good today. So um, on September 25th of 2019, I called him at 3 o'clock. I was actually driving in Madison, headed to Reunion to go list the house for sale. And it was about 3.02. And when I called, I mean, all I could hear was just him crying, couldn't get words out. What in the world is going on? And he said that... Um, his neighbor, which is one of their very best friends, had found his wife dead in their home. Um, had found your your brother, your sister in law. That's right. Yep. So that's that's where the story really begins because he was married. They have three kids. Uh, they were living in Brookhaven at the time, and um, you know I'm pulling over on the side of the road trying to figure out what in the world is going on. I had some suspicions, but at that time we had no idea. Um, you didn't know she was a, she was using drugs or no? Look, everybody's life is uh, mirrored with drama, and theirs was not short on that. And it was always a suspicion of, of what it could be. When you talk about prescription drug abuse, you guys can tell me more maybe than I've I've seen, but it brings so many ebbs and flows to moods and relationships that. You can be on cloud nine one day, and you can just be in a knockdown drag out 30 minutes later. It, it right. just it, it kind of fit a bill of what we thought was going on, but nothing had ever really been. There was never any conversations or anything. Uh, yeah, no, no approach of we got this issue, we got this problem, we need to get fixed. Um, it was always a back and forth between those two, thinking that one of them was doing something maybe that the other uh, didn't want them to be doing. But again, um, she she did pass away in September of 2019. I had the unfortunate privilege of sitting in their living room that night and telling their three babies that their mama passed away because um, you know, my brother couldn't get the words out at that time. It just it was so emotional. He, he just in lost. shock. Oh yeah. Um, you go to work in the morning thinking everything's fine, and you come home and find out this news. Everything has changed. Yes, I mean we're talking at 30. Two years old or so, 33 years old. Um, matter of fact, you know, one of the, the babies was still a bed baby in a crib. Um, so those kids and my brother never went back to their house. They they moved. That was in Brookhaven. They moved to Brandon uh, with my family that night and, and literally just wow. started fresh. Um, 
as I said when we very first got started, that my faith is is the biggest thing in my life. And I look back at God's blessings. I look back at silver linings of what this time gave us. But we ended up having two years of um, transition, two years of understanding quirks of these babies and these kids. You, know, you think about a mama's love and um, the things that moms do for kids. And look, we are not the parents of, we're not taking place of those kids. We are their parents, but we're not taking place of them. But um, a mama's love is just something that you can't really replace. Right. But my wife has stepped into that role more than anybody should be asked to do. You know, you, we can't go to McDonald's without her spitting off. Well, this one gets no ketchup. This one gets no mustard. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is just stuff that we learned over these two years. While their dad was still here, but he was still reeling. You know, he was still trying to find himself of what was going on. Uh, understandably. Understandably. I mean, and let's also put in perspective somebody that is fighting an addiction. When you go through something like that, what does common sense say it does? It, it probably exacerbates that, and it it puts you even more in a spiral to try to cope with. There's no probably to it. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I should bring up the very first part that led to her pass. That's what he led to her passing, but it ultimately gave a drunk a drink is um, about six months before she passed away. My brother's job was a roofer and he, um, he was on a roof in Greenville, Mississippi. He's doing a job for a friend of his at a, at a school and academy up there. And he fell 28 feet through a skylight. Um, I get the call from both of our friends that he was there with. They're like, hey, Wes fell through this roof. Um, I, he's pretty beat up pretty bad. I think we probably ought to get him to a hospital. I was like, all right, well, I'll, I'll get on my horse, get in my truck, and drive up there. I'll pick him up, take him to the hospital. I'm thinking a broke arm, a broke leg, something like that. I guess I really didn't put it in perspective, 28 feet. That, that's it's a long way. Yeah, there's there's a stat that says uh, after 18 feet, you have like an 85% mortality rate from there. So um, he fell. He ended up, uh, they kind of got him stabilized, and I'm on the way there, and I get about halfway, and they call him like, hey, you probably want to turn around. The, the helicopter's on the way to airlift him. I'm like, wait, what? Like, I'm, I'm thinking a broke arm. Again, that, that was my mentality of what happened. So uh, this is part of the story I was telling Clay, and he kind of chuckled, but this is how Mississippi works. They tell us, hey, meet us in Winona at the Holiday Inn Express, and we will rendezvous with the ambulance and the helicopter. So I pull into Winona, beat the helicopter there. They end up landing. He comes in on an ambulance. We get to say a couple of things, and then he hops on the helicopter and goes to UMC. Ultimately broke half of his body. I'm talking ribs and his back, uh, his hip, brain bleeds. All that to say is you can imagine what was prescribed to help with all those injuries. Everything. Yeah. There was no, if you need it, we just want to help you, and that's what the doctors would say. Um, that's when a lot of my knowledge came to the forefront that we we probably should have taken a different route. But how do you medicate somebody with all those injuries? They'd probably rather be dead if they can't get some type of relief. Right. Um. So that's where ultimately I feel like they had a lot of access at the time. Um, but also I'm, I'm not making light of the fact that whatever ultimately caused her death didn't come from a pharmacy. I have gotten a really good friend here in Madison that's put me in touch with the task force with the Madison County Sheriff's Department, and they've kind of filled me in on these pill presses that it looks like you're getting something out of a pharmacy. 
but they're basically filling it with fentanyl and they don't care what happens. Whoever this you know, pill press manager is, they don't care right. what the ultimate outcome is. They're looking to fill a product, make some money and move on. But um, I can tell you, Madison has an awesome group and um, if there can be change made, it will be here. They will find a way to prosecute somebody. And that's a loophole I have found that you can't really charge somebody for murder for selling a laced product. Right. Um, I wish that was a different, that it was different, but, and I don't know how you could trace that back either. There's, there's a lot of things that have to be worked out, but there needs to be some accountability to um, putting this stuff on the streets. Well, we just need a different word for it. You know, the, it's often discussed uh, in law school how the law doesn't, you know, move with the speed of technology. And there's, like, there should be some criminal culpability there. There should be. But we just have to call it something other than murder happens to mean something else. Right. And uh, We'll get there. Yeah. I mean, it's just going to take, you know, there's a, there has to be enough momentum to, to swing, to encourage prosecutors to try to find ways to charge people like that. Right. And that's, that's one more silver lining, if you will. I mean, all of this pain and all of this, this horrible, all these horrible things that have happened to you, they're now, God is able to use that in you to be able to help someone else down the line that is dealing with the exact same issue. And that's one of the things, that's one of the main reasons that I wanted you to come on the podcast is I, I want you to share that, that experience with us because not only it might be healing for you, but it's certainly probably going to be healing for someone that hears it. So sure. I, I really appreciate you coming on. There. Yeah. Uh, I don't think anything that I have to say today is going to shake somebody to their core and make them, Go clean up. But what I can... You never know. You never know. But what I can hope is what I can put on the table, if, if they open their their ears and their heart, the lingering effects that maybe really had not rang true to them, what is left behind of their decisions, of their habits, whatever it is. Because as we walk through the rest of this, I don't for a minute believe that my brother would ever wish what I have gone through over the past two years on his worst enemy, certainly not on me. He wouldn't have asked me to step up in the way that I've had to. He wouldn't have asked me um, to do to plan two funerals at 35 years old. That, that's something that I didn't really have on my to-do list. But. So let's, let's pick back up the helicopter. You're going to the, the hospital. Yeah. Um, so where do we go from there? Yeah, we met at UMC and, you know, he was in there for two weeks or so rehabbing and all that kind of stuff. But ultimately he did come back from the injuries. He went back to work, you know, but what that did is that gave us a six month period of, I, I call living the life of Job because, you know, God keeps testing a man and he says, do you love me? And, you know, he says, of course I do, Lord. Well, I'm going to take this away from you. Do you love me? Of course I do, Lord. Well, I'm going to keep taking this away from you. And I felt like he was just testing and testing and testing to ultimately break my brother into submission. But, um, you know, when you take your wife away from you, that that is your soulmate. That's that's the idea behind this marriage thing. And it ultimately just tailspins from that day. Um, we moved everybody into Brandon. Um 
as I said earlier, we, we kind of uh, went from a family of one kid to four. My wife and I have one daughter. She's 12 now. So at the time, um, she was eight, almost nine. My brother has three kids. Um, oddly enough, his oldest is six weeks um, younger than my daughter. So basically two kids exactly the same. Everywhere we, everywhere we go, we introduce them. Folks are like, are they twins? No, they're just like twins, built in almost teenagers. All girls, all four of them are girls, so there comes drama with that. God bless you. Yeah. So the other two um, is an eight-year-old and a five-year-old. So that's today's ages. So, you know, let's subtract basically three years from that when they first got here. You know, we were we had the world by the tail. And I say we, my wife and I, if we wanted to go to dinner, we just loaded my daughter up and went. We, we had to get back in that routine of packing a bag and packing little snacks. Diapers. Yeah, the little ones we eat. So literally we had to wean off of pacifiers. We had to potty train. All this stuff started back over when they moved in. Um, but that, again, goes back to this time period that we were allowed to – to just somewhat retrain and train ourselves and them and, and become a bigger family at the time. Um, so picking back up the story, they're here. You know, think li- life is pretty good. We're, we're just kind of managing, chasing kids every day. We got them re-enrolled in some different schools. I fought so many things that I didn't really expect to fight. And this goes back to a, you know, a lawyer-type term is these two individuals, my brother and sister-in-law, they were living life without any cares of the future. They didn't have wills in place. There, there was nothing there. I had to fight school districts to release the kids' records to be able to enroll them in school. Um, this is still today probably my biggest, um, I don't know, ick from the whole situation, is fighting family members. There, There's an in-law on my sister-in-law's side that thought these kids – didn't belong with their father, number one, but certainly not with this pack that could circle around and support them. Support these kids. Um, so we've been through years of legal battles for for custody of their kids. Um, ultimately, uh, it was you know awarded that kids need to be with their their parents, their father, whatever their mother at that time. I have learned so much from this legal standpoint of how Mississippi views this. And, and thank goodness I agree that the state sees that kids should be with their parents. There's maybe three circumstances where they say that a parent is unfit, and that's damn near hard to prove. Um, but in this case, I 100% agree. These kids needed to be uh, not only ripped away from the only other parent that was left here. Uh, you know, certainly after they lost their mom, they needed to be with their, their dad at that time. Their dad just happened to have this tribe around him that was helping to support them. So for two years, um, you know, he's going to work as a roofer and um, living with you. Yeah. And your wife. So the unique part about this story is, um, you know, I just keep going back to how it was laid out. Not my planning. About eight months before my sister-in-law passed away, I was able to move my parents right next door to me. So I live in this compound, if you will, where. My family's here. My parents are right next door. So we had this setup where the kids, they kind of had free reign between the houses where they wanted to leave, live. My brother did, per se, live with my parents. He had a, a room there, and uh, the kids ended up, because they usually just wanted to be around my daughter the most, they, they migrated to living with us for the most part at that time. I was... Um, you know, kind of coordinating carpool where my brother or I would take them to school one, one or the other mornings, but my wife always did the pickup. She was the, 
school mom for all the kids at that point. So the day their mom passed away, my wife quit her job. She knew that she had to be a mama to all four of these kids that day. And we truthfully didn't know if we were going to be there uh, in this position for six days, six weeks, or six years. We just, you know, this this all was a whirlwind that night that the mama passed away. So we kind of had to figure it out. There's There's no blueprint or roadmap for the crap that we walked through. Um, so kind of fast forwarding, like I said, um, into that two year period, um, the night that everything else changed for us, my brother and I were at my house and he had put the two little ones to bed and my wife had the two oldest ones at soccer practice and he had you know come to me and he's like, um, I kind of got a headache tonight. I think I'm going to go ahead and turn in a little early. They're winding down in bed if you know, you'll kind of check on them in the next 30 minutes and tell them to turn off the TV, we'll be good. So we did that. I hugged him like uh, you know, pretty much every night, told him good night, and he walked next door. And um, I kind of started my nightly routine, getting everything together, showering up, went in there, put the two little ones to bed for the last time. And I think I was reading a book, and my mom um, and dad just happened to be out of town for work that week, I think it was, but there was definitely that night. Um, one of the routines, again, being a close-knit family, like I said, is we just always kind of had some type of check-in throughout the day. But one of my mom's routines at the evening, she would always call and check on everybody. It was about 9 o'clock. Um, and she called me, and she's like, hey, um, how's everything going? And I talked to her. And she said, it's kind of early for Westar to be asleep. Will you, I'm just kind of nervous about it. Will you walk over there and just check on him? I'm thinking he probably just fell asleep. So, yeah, I hop up, put my slippers on. I mean, I was ready for bed. Um, walk next door, just kind of walk in the house. A couple of lights were on. And, um, you know, I call him out. I didn't want to startle him, didn't really hear anything. Again, I'm thinking he probably just fell asleep. Walked to one side of the house, didn't see anything. Walked to the other side, still didn't see anything. And I walked back out and I'm like, I know his truck's here. He didn't leave. So went back through to do another search. And ultimately that's, um, that's when I found my brother, um, where he had, I don't know what the right word is. He had fallen over. Um, you know, I, I still in my heart of hearts had an idea just kind of like I did with my sister-in-law. I ultimately left out a big part of the story um, is during that two-year period, as I said, things were spiraling. And we kind of were having very tough conversations every couple of weeks of how we got to get this right. He ultimately agreed at one point. So this was in October of this last year. In May, he finally agreed for me to get him some help. So he did um, go and put 90 days in at a facility. And when I said I left out a big part, I think that's ultimately what I have learned probably happens is someone goes and they do time in a facility and get really clean. Um, and then you have some type of um, bad decision made. That's what can get you a lot of times because your body's not used to that. Um, and I'm convinced to this day that's probably what happened. We we weren't on a daily spiral at this point. We were we were in a good place because he had just come back for the most part. Um, let me get my dates right. So he passed away in October, and he had just gotten back in September. So, you know, statistics are tough when you get to reading this stuff. There's several guys that they go to one facility, and that's one and done. Uh, one of my good friends you guys had on the podcast, Neil, um, he was here a couple weeks ago, and mm -hmm. he was a one-and-done type guy. But I remember my brother would call me 
uh, we'd I'd write letters every day while he was there, but he would call once a week and he's like, Man, I'm here with somebody that's been on their eighteenth deal. And I'm like, gosh, if it if it ain't sinking in by number eighteen, what what does it take? Um so that's where what got us into this. I, I truly feel like what's part of my story is what happened after you know, my brother passed away is, is picking up these pieces of the aftermath of what it's changed the dynamics of, of my family. Um, I said at the very beginning that I had the privilege of telling those kids that their mom passed away. Ultimately, I had to do that the same way a second time um, that their dad passed away. And it doesn't get any easier for sure. But that is part of that silver lining that those kids went to bed the same way they did the night before as they did their dad died because he had given us this period of transition that they were already in their bed. They didn't get ripped away from a house. They they knew who their parents were. Um, they knew who, I, I use this term all the time, they knew these two steady eddies were going to be there for them. They knew that my wife, the rock star, they knew that, I was going to be there that morning to get them up for school. And while it could have been earth shattering, it was one of those deals that they just took in stride. And it, to this day, it gives me chills just to think about how all this has come together. It's incredible, man. It is incredible. Kids are resilient, but they should never be asked to pay for the, the bad decisions of someone else. And, and sometimes I feel that's the case. Walk us through that first morning after your brother's death. Yeah. So this, that's a night that I can close my eyes and put myself right back to it. But Were you able to sleep that night? Were you able? No, no not at all. So um, that was, I said, about 9 o'clock, 9, 9.30 when I kind of found that. So I, I found what I found, and I knew the outcome. But I kind of, all right, take a deep breath, get, get my thoughts about me. Um, I, I run next door because my wife had just gotten back home from soccer with the kids, pull her to the side, and I tell her what I what I found and what I know. We get on the phone. We call 911 and kind of get everything rolling. Um, you know, they come in with bells and whistles and all that stuff. I, I live in Rankin County, like I said, so we have a fantastic volunteer fire department. They worked for an hour or more. But I will say that we all kind of knew what that outcome was be. But they, they kept working. They used the Narcans. They did all that stuff. Um, we were very cognizant to not try and scare the kids. So once the first person got on scene, I asked them if they would tell everybody else to respond, if they would just cut the bells and whistles off on the way there. Um, we kind of worked a backdoor situation that got the kids. Um, again, they were at my house. He was at my parents next door, so we didn't have to uh, see anything on that part for them. But we were able to backdoor them to a, a friend's house that ultimately got them to another family member just for the night. My wife and I kind of, held down the fort until midnight, one o'clock, once everybody got um, their jobs completed. And, you know, my wife and I just stayed up till four or five o'clock in the morning, staring at the wall, staring at each other. Of At this point, we still had not told the kids. We ended up leaving our house at about 4.45 that morning and driving to our family member's house where the kids were so that we could be there the moment they woke up. Man, if I pause, it's just because this this is still an emotional topic for sure. But just to think about those those raw moments that I didn't have words to say, and I still don't know that what came out was truly me talking. 
But we sat down with them in my sister-in-law's uh, living room, and you know, I, I kind of told them what was going on, and I told them that if there was one thing I can promise them is that they'll never have to ask again where they'll live and who their parents will be. I just I wanted to put that at ease right there, that there wouldn't be another time that they didn't know who was going to take care of them. Um, so we... Pulled it all together again. I cannot believe how well they took this news that they didn't have a parent in the world. They, they were wards of the state, and that's something that I learned so <clears throat> abruptly that wills don't really matter if they are contested. Um, we, again, went back through this custody battle with a, a family member that believed that they shouldn't be with the same two parents that had been raising them for the past two years. Um, so I literally called the attorney that had been working for us at 7.30 that very next morning and said, hey, you got to get on this. We, we know what's coming. So we started an uh, emergency request for custody. We already had them in a school system that worked, so we kept all that the same. But here's the part that blew me away. Three days later, they caught the flu or something. There's no insurance in place. Apparently, an insurance policy, if that person that's the head of the policy is gone, the kids aren't covered. I couldn't get a doctor to see them, number one, not because of insurance. I'd have paid it out. But there was no parent to take them to the doctor. There was no guardian in place. It it was just one of those situations. I'm like, how do I keep affecting these dead interns by trying to just take care of these babies? So we ended up having, uh, you know, we've got friends that are doctors, and, and we can figure things out, but I never anticipated not being able just to simply get them treated for the flu at the time. A couple weeks later, one of them needed to go to a dentist for a toothache. I was still fighting the same battle, so the, none of that was in place. But we, we ultimately got it figured out, got them covered on you know insurance. Um, that was, like I said, October 13th. And on February 4th of the following year, this is the, the praise God moment, we were um, officially able to adopt the three babies, so... They are mine. They carry our last name. They did anyway. Um, and as I said back to that very first morning, they never have to doubt where their home will be. They never have to be the new kid again. Um, and that's that's probably the words that ring true in my head is when they first moved here. Sure, they lost their their mom. I mean, that that is devastating. But it was the fact that they just kept having to be the new kid over and over again. And they're not the first kids that have to move. I get that. But they had everything ripped from them and had to move. So all that to say is the decisions that their parents made had this ripple effect on, to this day, a 12-year-old, an 8-year-old, and a 5-year-old that didn't ask for any of this. Uh, fast forward to today, and they are straight-A students. They're all into travel soccer, and we are a crazy train depot at my house that nobody knows what direction we're going if there wasn't for the Google Calendar that shares back <laughs> and forth. Um, 
We have our rough days for sure, man. Uh, four girls with the drama that goes on just amongst them, not only with their friends. Um, I feel like there needs to be a set of blueprints that I can wake up every morning and follow of what eggshells to walk on, of who's going to be in their mood today. But we, uh, we're figuring it out day by day. What a blessing that they have you. Man, it's, it's not me. I'm not here for a pat on the back if anybody deserves it. It is my wife, but the whole idea behind getting this story out, look, I'm not one that puts my family on blast. I'm not one that shares a lot of intimate details. Uh, there's been a year or more of just speculation of what, you know, what goes on, but I want this to be a ripple effect that could possibly just get to one person that could keep their family from going through the disaster that I did in 2019. If these two adults that had babies viewed things differently, if they changed their priorities, look, I, I get the grips of addiction. It is something that is probably infallible to overcome, but they did make the choice to be parents. And unfortunately, they left those kids without a parent. And that's something that I can't ever put as number two on my list. I, I have to be there. I have to be the one. I don't get to grieve every day. Um, look, I lost my brother, my best friend in life. But I have to be the one that soldiers on and that puts that puts one foot in front of the other that shows them that we got to carry on. I, I can't go to my room every day and cry. How do you deal with it? It's tough. Um, I get the the benefit of being busy with work. Uh, I put way too many hours in. Um, so that keeps my mind occupied. I, I look at my parents, and they don't always have that same pace of life. And I know that's a struggle for them. Look, I, I don't think we should ever have to bury one of our babies. We, we just weren't, from the maker day one, we weren't put together to be able to go before our kids. And that's something that a piece of you leaves. Yeah, it's contrary to nature. Yeah. So they still... I mean, they're fighting that. We're we're a year later. That that's literally we're we're just talking about sixteen months or so from when that happened. So there's there's still raw feelings every day. There's memories that come up. The holidays are never easy. Um, you know, right when my brother passed away in October, we had um, Halloween like two weeks later, and that's just something that we've always done with the little ones together and. That was fresh for me. It was fresh for the kids because that's just me and my brother walked the streets taking the kids Halloween. We had Thanksgiving. We had Christmas come up. And, you know, you try to put that face on to make it special for the kids, but you just know a piece of you is missing. And every family has faced loss. Every family has had a death in the family. I think it's the tragedy of waking up one day with no anticipation that this this is coming um you know, i guess it's kind of like a, a car wreck that just takes them away from you immediately that's that's kind of the feeling that i have that there was no preparation mentally for this well one of the things that especially with opiates when it's when an opiate is your drug of choice and you go a little while without it so you go to treatment for 90 days or whatever and you know your your system is not used to the levels that you are that you were you know previously at 
and all it takes is just a just the smallest of mistakes yeah. and and they could go and, and get a, a a pill that's laced with just a tiny bit of fentanyl and that that mistake that 10 years ago would not have been deadly today <gasps> is deadly yeah there's there's no second chances with today's drugs that are on the market Try to, try to get your mouth closer to the microphone. Okay. Yeah, so the, the game has changed, I, I feel like, of what is being put out on the streets for sure. Um, <laughs> I, I'm sure it's like any business if that's what it is. They're trying to make a product that costs them less, that makes their margins better. Is that a, a yeah. thought for drug dealers? No, that's exactly it. Yeah. So my goal would be, Obviously, to, to get this message out, but I have gotten tons of relationships with folks that are working to, to fight these pill mills. Um, I've got relationships with folks that can help get folks into treatment if they have no direction to go, if they don't know how it works financially, if they need some help. I, I have spent the legwork to put that together, and I would love to. Th this is not my job. This is not my specialty, but I do have those people in my quote-unquote Rolodex that I would love to help because what I learned coming back from um, the rehab, the facilities, they have all the steps in place. Everybody says all the right things, but you fall through the cracks. Um, we had trouble lining up a steady sponsor. We had trouble lining up a steady outpatient that fit. You come back out of this safety bubble for 90 days, six months, whatever it looks like, and then the world hits you like a ton of bricks. Right. Recovery starts when you get out of treatment. Yeah. And you can send somebody to recovery. That's the other thing I've learned. You can send them somewhat against their will. They can go begrudgingly but look until there's that click that i am done with this it doesn't matter yeah, you can lead a horse to water but you can't make it drink yeah I, i've i've thought long and hard about this like what what was that final straw that broke the camel's back what and i have come to believe that recovery and getting the drug addict across that line where they can say no matter what i'm not going to get high and it's kind of like building a brick wall you know no one brick is the one that got the job done but it takes a constellation of them and that's why i think it's important for people like you to tell your story so that hopefully the drug addicts out there can realize myself included can realize just how selfish we really are uh, when you were telling the story, I was reminded, there's a, so you seem pretty familiar with AA or how, or, you know, there's the AA book, the big book. There's a companion book called the 12 and 12. And it, it has a, a line in it that goes something like, it's, it's talking about a life run on self will, you know, this pure selfishness, how it's a bone crushing juggernaut whose final achievement is ruin. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's, that's what happened to your sister-in-law and brother is the, the pure selfishness of the active drug addict and being, it, it's not just being indifferent towards the consequences of our behavior. It's being 
unable to to remedy it. And I think if more people can appreciate what's left over, the shattered wreckage, pieces, yeah. the shattered pieces, the how you know you didn't you weren't getting your jollies off. You didn't get any of the benefit. Didn't ask know? for it. That's for sure. And, right. and here you are, uh, you and your wife doing yeoman's work and. It was an old phrase that I read one time that said, as far as an addict goes, they're choosing one thing over everything instead of everything over one thing. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's really what I felt like if, for him, and that's that's really all I can speak of, if seeing firsthand after his wife passed away can't shake you to your core and seeing what the little ones are going through, you know, where where does your hierarchy of priorities take take stock in um well that's one of the things that this disease and it is a disease it is recognized as a disease yeah. by the medical community it is cunning baffling and powerful um and it it can take it, it and it's patient it's very patient so you can you can be doing great and there can just be this just little tinge of life stressor yeah just you know well i've i've gone you know, three months. I'm doing really good. You know, just one little thing is is not gonna is not gonna hurt anything. Our minds are so powerful to convince us that just one little wrong step in the wrong direction is not gonna hurt anybody. It's not gonna hurt anybody. Uh, and and at that point, the disease is won. And and once we make that decision to put, you know, especially after being dry for for some time, once we, it is you know, we make a decision to put that first substance or drink or whatever in our body and once once that happens it sets off the phenomenon of craving and we don't have control anymore Uh, it's it's out of our control well statistics show uh, at least for opioids that i I think eighty thousand americans died last year or the year before and it's increasing by about ten thousand each year this is something that is keeping pace or record pacing out Hard drugs, I call it, but um, I don't know. There's any difference between what this is doing and hard drugs that are being shot up here. It's still killing folks. It's the it, it triggers the exact same mechanism in the mind, yeah, and or in the brain. It's the exact same thing. And the part that gets to me is this is a type addiction or a type of drug that you can live everyday life and really still have this secondary life going behind you that folks don't know about. Um, you know, you look at a neighborhood setting, one out of three houses is fighting some type of addiction. But when it comes to opioid or prescription pains or whatever, you're still usually functioning, but you're fighting it at the same time. And that's that was our story. We were still going to the school functions. We were in church every Sunday, but there was this this darker side going on that we didn't really know about. Right. Um, that's why it's it's super important for you know if I said it I've said it before but um, you know that's that's the reason that I wanted you to come on here is because we we need to you know normalize recovery we need yeah. to normalize the fact that these things go on and you know one one thing that my mind just keeps bringing up and bringing up um, since you've been here is the importance of a will um, the importance of you know. If you are a family and you're struggling or your your family member is struggling with with a, a substance abuse disorder, um, how imperative it is 
you know, hopefully nothing is going to happen. Not, hopefully the family member is not going to pass away. But if, if you are in the grips of that addiction with the drugs that are on the street today, you have to take those steps in order to ensure that should the worst thing in the world happen, the children will be taken care of and the children will have a path. As uncomfortable as it is, yeah. I mean, that's from a legal standpoint, you can kind of bring that up, but I, I feel like you want to have that in place, just like you were saying that you can have Narcan on, on hand. You might need to just go ahead and put that in place if you're playing with fire. Right. Yeah, absolutely. The problem with having a will that says, if something should happen to me, that uh, little Johnny should go live with uncle whoever, that's no guarantee that uncle whoever is a suitable person to have custody. Right. So, uh, you, and, or you could execute your will and direct that your children should go somewhere. And at the time you drafted and executed the will, the somewhere was a good place. Right. You know, search circumstances could change, uh, you know, subsequent to execution of the will. And ours was contested. Again, I don't know the ins and outs of the legal side of what makes it available to be contested, but there, there was a will in place for my brother because I had walked through this previously a year and a half before. So I made sure I had all those steps in place, but it was still a contested adoption. And that was just because of that one family member. Yeah. They want, I mean, you don't have to go into the weeds about this. They, they objected to your adopting the kids, but didn't object to, I mean, ultimately, it doesn't matter. You got the kids. That's all that matters. No, I mean, but I'm, I'm here to kind of talk through the, the scenario. We um, Well, this is just yet another consequence of yes. what happens when you are generally only concerned about yourself right. and getting high. I'm an outsider at this point. Obviously, it's my brother, but I have dropped over 80 grand in legal fees fighting for kids in the past three years. Oh, for sure. It is insane what has been asked of us just by doing the right thing for the kids. So um, my sister-in-law's mom felt that these kids belonged elsewhere. Families are Did they just not like you, or they felt like <laughs> it, her house was a better place? Yeah. So they fought my brother when the, the mom passed away, number one. Um, she felt that they belonged with her as a... 70 year old grandmother you know i i can't figure out for the life of me why someone don't feel that these children deserve a father and a mother at least in setting now um that have the next decades ahead of them to be able to chase these kids and provide a fantastic life for them i think there's motives uh you know there, there's motives that come with state benefits there's a lot of things there right well, I wouldn't i'm certainly thinking insurance or so i don't know there's some uh yeah yeah but um, it sounds like the antagonist in this story was very, very sick. Man, it was. And when you talk about what you're grieving and what you're going through, that's the last thing that you want to be fighting. Mm-hmm. But it was. Uh, we had to go through a drawn-out year-and-a-half court battle at that time just for my brother to keep his kids. And I was still footing the bill. Uh, I remember the judge he kind of asked my wife and I, he goes, let me kind of get this straight. Why are you guys here? Because this, this gentleman, he's the father of their kids. You, you don't, get yeah, this them. isn't your fight. Yeah. He goes, 
I guess what you're saying is you're just back here watching if there is a a train wreck or a car wreck crash, I think is how you put it. You're just waiting to see what happens and to swoop in in the aftermath. And that's ultimately what happens. We were my wife and I were third parties to this. But we said, look, if there's some reason that this judge ultimately says the kids shouldn't be with their father, which they should, and they were, before they go this other direction, here's option. We're a viable exactly. alternative. And so we we spent boo koodles of money just to be that person. I can't keep saying this one phrase over again, though. Is As bad as that sucked and as much as I hated going through that, that put so many things in motion for us that the moment we knew we had to do the adoption when my brother passed away, I had it all in place. I mean, it was just like boom, boom, boom. The relationships were there. I knew the judges from a matter of association of who we were going to be in front of. And we streamlined this thing where it it was pretty, it was a pretty good situation because we didn't have to start from scratch. As bad as that sucked of spending all that money, we had a leg up. We, we kind of knew what we were up against. The three chancellors in Rankin County are oh, yeah. are excellent. They are. And well, all that to say is the first battle was in Lincoln County. Oh, that's where uh, Grandma lived? That's where Grandma lived, but also that's where the kids resided when their I mom got passed you. away. Yeah. But once we got to... Once we got to the formal adoption, uh, everything was in Rankin County. So we had people come into our house. They were investigating as this suitable residence. Um, it's It has just been... Out of all the drama that we had to go through, to still go back and have to literally have a legal battle, that that's the thing that icks me the most. Like we, we couldn't even grieve because I was, as I said earlier, I had to be the fighter. I became the warrior to do the legal side while I'm also going home at night trying to comfort these babies. Well, now, as a result of all of those layers of onion that got peeled back, you and your wife are uniquely qualified to help the next person. Yes, and I'm happy to walk somebody. I would hate to say happy because that that would be a sucky situation for them. But um, I do feel like we have got the pieces in place, the roadmap, as I say, of here's what immediately needs to be done. Here's what kind of that mid-level needs to be done. And here's what your goals are to kind of get a long-term plan together to get some normalcy to life because that's what ultimately has set us on a better trajectory is just creating some normalcy. We know what our Mondays and Tuesdays are like. We know what our Thursdays and routines. Yeah. Uh, as busy as it is, I wish it would slow down. It has kept us going. It will one day and you'll look back and, and, and where did the time go? You know, <laughs> from what I hear, yeah. that's what I hear at least. <clears throat> I mean, we, we look at when the littlest one is going to be in college. Um, we weren't expecting that. So that's a starting fresh kind of thing for us. How old are you? I'm 39 this year. So it's And how old is your youngest one? Uh, she'll be six next week. Monday, yeah, we're going to have a birthday party. I feel you. I'm 46 and have a, a soon-to-be three-year-old. Damn! So. <laughs> Chasing little ones is not for the faint of heart. Who, why is your granddaddy always around? <laughs> like I know it's coming. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Well, we got about five minutes, guys. I appreciate the opportunity to get the story out. Like I said, I wasn't uh, one to to put our our garbage on blast, but I'm to a point in this, in in my healing, where I'm ready to do that. And I don't know what all platforms that's going to be. I had told Clay Edwards, I was like, look, I I don't know how to get this thing out any more than I am. But what would you like people to know? What resource would you like them to know is available? What. What information to somebody who may be similarly situated 
What would you want them to know? Well, the, the first thing is we need to scare them straight, right? That's my thoughts of – and I don't think it can just be a scare straight. If you got the, the grips of this addiction around you, you got to get help. Well, look, I revert Agreed. back to my, my brick wall analogy. It's not just your sad story. But it's your sad story and that person's story and that person's story and that person's story that weaves a tapestry that helps motivate people in active addiction to to seek the help that is available. And we could hear stories like this over and over and sure. over again. When I was using, I, I, I was in and out of the rooms for 20 years. And every time I would hear some little thing, I'd hear something here or something there, something there. And, and I didn't change at the time, but all of those little, little bits of information that I picked up over the years of creating a literal tornado for those that, are, that were around me, all of, that, all of that came together at one point and, and, and brought me to my knees. And it was at that point where God said, okay, you're ready, you're willing, I'm going to help you. Meet you where you are. That's right. right. And you've got to come to that place where they always call it rock bottom. I mean, that's as redneck term as it comes, but yeah. that's, that's ultimately where you have to get met, I feel like. I don't want to put names on blast, but um, there is an individual that I have become very close with, I, I would dare to call a friend, that runs a program out of Broadmoor Baptist here in Madison. She has made it her life's work to get individuals into programs, and that has probably been the greatest connection I have to be able to say, this person is ready to take that step. Let's get them in the connected group that we need to, and we'll figure out the, uh, the finances after the fact. That I was blown away at what it costs to go to a facility. It's not cheap. Oh it's not God. cheap at all. And, and we're working th- on that. We're working on that. I mean, I'm talking this, $1,000 a day sometimes. That's easy. This is the benefit of the faith-based treatment center system. Uh, I don't know how familiar you are with it. I had been in and around recovery for a very long time and didn't even know it existed. But faith-based places are generally pretty cheap or free. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are a bunch of them. There are a whole lot of them in South Mississippi and near Mobile. Uh, I went to one that was completely free. It's the largest, it's probably the largest treatment center in the South. They house over 100 men, and it's completely free. Wow. I mean, it, it, you know, you, you're told you need the Holy Spirit to help you detox. I mean, it's, it's rough. Right. There's lots of different paths to uh, recovery. But, I mean, I mean, it, it worked wonders in my life. Yeah. I think so many that I know about, look, I, I don't know the folks that hardcore street level users. Um, I'm, I'm probably more of a white collar type. Um, I assure you. You're every, looking at two of those. Every <laughs> white collar <laughs> drug abuser you've ever met, the minute they run out, are going to be buying things off the black market. Yeah. And just like you mentioned about the pill mills, they're indistinguishable generally from the real thing. And, I mean, your drug dealer isn't trying to kill you because they want you to buy more. I mean, it it would defeat their business model Mm -hmm. if all of their customers died. They may not even know. I I doubt they know where they're getting it from. They they don't. I actually, contrary to that, uh, I did see a documentary um, years ago 
where they were interviewing a drug dealer in New York who um, specialized in opiates, uh, mainly heroin, but also pills. And he said that he would lace a certain number of baggies with fentanyl, with a deadly amount of fentanyl, and put those into the community. And what would happen is those individuals that were you know, used to the normal heroin or the normal opiates, they'll get, you know, they will hear from the street that, hey, this product really does it. This, 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 somebody died. So, you know, it's going to be good stuff. I just won't do as much as them. And, and I'm, and, and he knowingly puts a deadly product on the street in order to get to attract those users. So there is no bottom to drug dealers at no. this point. There's, there's nothing they won't do. And talking about dealers, I also immersed myself in just kind of understanding the mindset. Uh, I watched this documentary or show even. It was on Hulu called Dope Sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you haven't, I mean, that will truly show you the grips that this stuff will go to. Yeah. Um, docs getting wrapped up in it. It just the the ones that know the effects and they still can't break the chains. That one uh, was with uh, uh, what's his what's Michael his, Keaton. Michael Keaton, yeah. 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 And that's that's I mean I watched it too, and that's that's not Hollywood. That's uh-huh. that happens. I can see every that day, every city. every day. And you know, thank goodness there's a a way out of that one, and they kind of show how that thing worked itself out. But it also showed folks passing away. It showed families getting wrecked and. I think that's part of our story of our family didn't ask for this. We weren't brought up this way. Um, we know right from wrong, but once those grips got a hold of somebody, that ripple effect started affecting my business. I mean, think about I fight anxiety horribly, and I couldn't even function in the business that pays my little family's bills because I was so wrapped up in what I was drug into just trying to pick up my brother's pieces. It's crazy. Well, you're doing you're doing the Lord's work now, and um, I, I, I'm so happy to hear that you and your wife are are were there, and that God has used you guys in that situation. Because you know who knows what what would have happened if you you and and your wife were not in a position to help, and you know now those kids have a, a wonderful wonderful future ahead of them. So. Yeah. Um, Amen. I'll show you guys as, as we kind of sign off here a, a photograph of all of them. But oh wow, that's uh, that's a bunch of girls in one place. <laughs> You're outnumbered for and sure. The reason I bring that photograph up is that photograph looks distinctly different than it did three years ago. Our family's always been one that kind of documents age brackets and, and photos and we, we've done large family got the door jam right. with the yeah and that photograph just looks so much different than it did three years ago when i had a sister-in-law and a brother and their kids and my wife and our kid and um that's ultimately what it shrunk down to now it's heart heart-wrenching absolutely well we appreciate you coming on thank you so much yeah guys it's absolutely amazing it. and uh, you're doing great work thank you so much all right ladies and gentlemen we're out. I feel bad having my funkadelic.